Okay, guys, we're here, and uh, huh, nothing like last minute. Okay, here we go, and uh, we're going to do this a little differently today. Let me get up here. We're going to be doing this a little... Hi, how's it going, everybody? Happy Sunday. New book, new beginnings. Need new headphones. <laughs> I know what's going on, too, with these. Just hang on, give me a minute. Trying to make sure these things stay hooked. Therein lies the conundrum with the headphones. There, got a loose connection. Okay, um, welcome. And uh, it's our Sunday reading. Hang on one second. I know this is where the issue is. We'll give people a few minutes to um, come in. And uh, so we can read the book, and uh, it's going to be a little different. Um, last week, hang on, <laughs> just trying to do this. Okay, last week I uh, was reading directly from my uh, pad, my iPad, uh, not my iPad, but a little light from my uh, tablet. But uh, this is a little different because I'm going to be reading it off the desktop, so uh, it's a PDF, and uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to start this book, The Way Through the Woods. You know, um, my family comes from Hungary, and uh, I got uh, several years ago. I got to go visit there, and uh, it was very interesting. Even though I was a kid, you know, but uh, I'm glad to be here. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour or so because I'm going to be reading this book, and uh, this book is written by Anna Marie. Uh... <laughs> Hang on. Okay. All right, this book is written by Anna Marie Manalo, and uh, I'm really excited about it. In fact, I'm flipping pages here. Uh, I'm only going to see half the screen, you know, and. Uh... Okay. The Way Through the Woods. As I come down to the chapters and take a look at chapters. Anyway, welcome to the read today, and uh, I'm getting some people, you know, giving some people some time to get online here so we can start reading. Starting a new book. Last week, we finished off The Ghost of Flight 401, and uh, that was an interesting read. That's all I have to say is it was a really interesting read. So uh, today, we're going to start The Way Through the Woods by Anna Maria Monello, and uh, this should be a very interesting read. Like I said earlier, um, my family comes from Hungary my on my father's side. And so a lot of my relatives uh, that are in England right now uh, came came over to England during World War II. They got out of there during and during the Hungarian and, and, during, and during the Russian Revolution they got out. So this book kind of hits me right in the heart, you know, because my family lived it. My grandfather fought in World War One. My father fought in World War Two against the Germans and the mostly the Germans because he was on the East Coast. But he did uh, have occasion to fight against the Japanese World War II when his ship, because he was, he was a U.S. Coast Guard, would come into San Francisco. So he did fight in the Pacific as well. So this kind of, you know, this World War II theme book like this comes through my heart. And um, now another couple minutes, and I'll explain what the book is. And we have a preface to read, and uh, we'll get going with it. I'm really excited about this. Uh, Anna Maria is a regular guest on our show. And she's really fun to have on. And uh, she's a very talented writer. 
And uh, like I said, I'm really looking forward to uh, doing this today and starting this book. But again, my name is Charlotte. I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We also have people up and down the state of California, like 45, 35 to 45 members up and down the state of California, so that we can serve and help people with their paranormal needs. And we do it for free. That's what's cool about it. We do it for free. Okay. Um, so uh, welcome. And uh, you can visit the uh, radio website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or if you feel like looking at paranormal stuff, you can check us out at CaliforniaHaunts.org. The uh, website is undergoing uh, a transfer. We're transferring uh, carriers. So we're going to be switching over to Weebly for that website. So we're in the process of moving files. So there might be stuff that's, you know, audio and stuff that's missing. But uh, it's all good stuff. Trust me. It's all good stuff. That's what the guy said before the plane went over. Trust me. No, but seriously, it's all good stuff. And uh, so uh, it's going to be a while because it's a huge website over there. We have it at Yahoo right now. And Yahoo's not going to be hosting anymore. So it's one of the biggest websites on Yahoo. So it's going to take me a while to get it moved over. You know, to get everything put on Weebly. So, yeah. Okay, so let's start. This is called The Way Through the Woods. It's by A Child's Escape Through the Haunted Forest of W. I almost said WWII, I'm sorry. A Child's Escape Through the Haunted Forest of World War II Germany. And Anna, and Anna Maria Manalo is the uh, author on this. I don't know why I find it hard to. Anna Maria Manalo. I see, I got it finally. Is the author. And uh, like I said, she's been on our show a couple of times. We're going to have her on again because she's, she, she's terrific to talk to. Great interview. And uh, she uh, volunteered her book to be read next in line. And I, I jumped at the chance because I, I just think uh, the last interview we did with her was about this book in particular. And so um, I was excited at, at doing that interview to have her on the show. Uh, okay, so I want to let everybody know the difference that we're doing tonight, too, is that uh, my tablet is an older Android, so I cannot get my Yahoo Mail on it any longer. So I have to read it off screen here. So this is what's happening. So I, I can see half my face. <laughs> and then I've got the PDF in front of me. So I'm going to be reading it directly, uh, directly off my computer screen. So let me move this up a little bit. We got our contents. So we're looking at approximately 249 chapters plus, plus the e-plog. There's, there's photos in here too that you're not going to see, but um, yeah. Okay. We have a poem right now from Ru from Rudyard Kipling, and it says. They shut, round, they shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again. And now you would never know. There was once a road through the woods be before they planted the trees. It is under the compass of hell and hell and the thin, uh, and the thin anemones. Rudyard Kipling, The Way Through the Woods. Hopefully my tongue won't be messing up today like it has. So let's get to the preface, and we'll just jump right in here. Let me roll it on up. Okay. Now, some of these towns are in German. I will do my best. <laughs> okay. And some of the names are in German, so I will definitely do my best on this. No offense to anybody that's that's from Germany or knows German, okay? Uh, like I said, my family is Hungarian, so it's a totally different ballgame. All right? Blinkenbach. Blinkenbach. I'm sure, I'll, I'm sure Anna will correct me on this if I'm wrong with it. 
sits approximately 55 kilometers northwest of Frankfurt, a village of no more than 200 inhabitants, mostly a combination of modest stone and bean cottages. Today it has over 800 inhabitants. Surrounded by fields and forests, arable land, and small small agrarian farms, (laughs) agrarian farms, I got it, (laughs) for sheep, goats, and vegetables. It was considered a prosperous but humble village in the 1930s. A couple, Horst Schneider and his wife Agatha, settled in the village and soon had a daughter, Krista. Horst, slight, yeah, Horst, slight and diminutive for a German, was raised as a child of of pragmatic means, and he remained humble to a fault and well-meaning. His parents encouraged him to to seek a trade he excelled in, and thus he became a tailor. Later on, this proved to determine the course of his life and the unexpected benevolence he received in the rapidly changing climate brewing in Berlin, which would cause millions of deaths. And there's a picture of Krista right here as a child, just to let you know. I'm going to try and move this over a little bit because the spotlight is right on my right side, so I'm trying to struggle to kind of read and, you know, deal with the spotlight. Horse worked in his shop. This is the best I can do. Horse worked in his shop. Okay, well, Horse worked in his shop in the center of the village. Agatha, also from humble means, the only child of weavers from northern Germany, embroidered handkerchiefs and shawls, and tended to a vegetable garden. Krista helped her mother and prayed on the hearth floor as she listened to her sing. This is their story and the terrifying events they witnessed when they entered the woods of Germany in order order to flee. The natural world, let's see, the natural world, animals, okay, in the natural world, animals only destroy each other in order to feed and survive. Humans destroy out of greed, hate, and intolerance. This book is about what happens outside the three-dimensional world when millions of humans are left without rights as human beings. This is when Mother Earth herself screams for justice. Most importantly, it is about the resiliency of spirit, the convergence of evil in the wilds of the forest, and the battle that ensues after the battle on the ground has destroyed all semblance of life. I dedicate this book to those who... To those whose benevolence and compassion have overridden man's instinct to, to uh, over men's, excuse me, have overridden man's instinct to destroy. It is because of them, in both human, animal, and spiritual form, that we have survivors of World War II. Krista is one of those survivors. Ampersand. Info. Info thing. This book is based on true events, although the names of towns and villages given in this account are based on recollections of the, <clears throat> of the heroine. Names of individuals have been changed to protect them. Anna Marie Manello. And away we go. Excuse my stomach growling. Thank you, producer Marisa Haynes, for bringing me chocolate mousse today, too. That was awesome. I was having a chocolate craving. Happens to the best of us. Chapter 1. Today something is brewing. Unlike other days, the horse cart passed under the bedroom window and stopped. Krista leans out in time to see her mother, Agatha, talking in animated whispers on the street below to a mustached man in his thirties. 
his shock of blonde hair waffling in the wind. The bread man. By his side, a boy of eight, Joseph. Hands Agatha a pressed a fresh loaf of bread. Not the usual two, but one. Joseph needs a haircut, Krista observes. His hair is like his father's. Sensitive to the nuances of tone and body language, even at her age of three, Krista notices her mom's undercurrent of anxiety and the staccato movements of her hands, her inflection and tone as she talks with the bread man. Several miles away to the north, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler, previously an unknown artist, has just won recognition in the arena of politics. It is 1933. Krista looks about, attempting to discern what has changed. Her own blonde hair pinned severely in braids. Two sides plated like waffle weed, the glow of the sun reflecting back. Krista wonders what created the change in her mother, but knows her mom will explain. She always comforts her and loves listening to her stories. As Krista watches, I want to check one thing, guys. Did I push the button? Okay, wanted to make sure I was on. Sorry about that. Okay. Listening to her stories as Krista watches her embroider tablecloths, napkins, and handkerchiefs. Always a patient child, she will wait. She pulls out a handkerchief with a pink pony and it's a, a flower. Pink peony. I don't know if it's pony or peony. Em, embroidered on one corner and dabs her forehead with her small hands as she watches. Joseph's eyes look back with hers and he waves. Krista shyly waves back. Krista's, eye, Krista's eyes wander above her and stop at the loudspeakers installed right under the roof of the last cottage where the village ends and the farm fields begin. She traces the roof edges and notes and notes that the, that the speakers were installed like large eyes, bowed down towards the narrow cobbled street in groups of two or in, in groups of two every two houses. She did not notice them before. Why so many loudspeakers? Do we like music that much? One, two, one, two, all the way to the Beckmans. The Beckmans are a family of four. They have a little girl her age, Myla. But Myla is different somehow. Her mom still brings her to, to a cart to visit, like a pig baby. Oh, in a cart to visit, like a pig baby. Myla is unsteady on her feet, unlike Krista, who was already running by age two and playing with the neighborhood cat and I and the neighborhood boys. Myla, her mother, Emma said, was born that way. Her eyes are different than any other child in the village. They are swollen or smaller somehow. But she smiles and is always happy to see Krista. Myla makes everyone smile, including Krista, who is serious for her age and eagerly awaits going to morning school the following year. Agatha takes Myla in once in a while to babysit as extra money in addition to her embroidery. Horace practices his tailoring skills and is successful in the village, but he has a touch of adeptness and style that also helps him sell in far-off Frankfurt. Once in a while, they go there, and Krista marvels at the big buildings, the marble staircases, and the shops full of clothes, ladies dressed and coiffed, unlike her own mother, and the ice cream. Ah, the ice cream. It's like heaven in a cone. She likes trying them all. One scoop of raspberry, one scoop of espresso. Yes, that's what it's called, she thinks. Her father disapproves of the little girl eating. 
There we go. Her father disapproves. <laughs> I got lost because it moved. Okay. Her father disapproves of a little girl eating coffee ice cream. But her mom allows it. As it is seldom. Those trips are rarely in their budget. So she allows her daughter these wonderful opportunities to savor what they couldn't otherwise obtain in her little village. Krista recalls her father saying she she would remain short like him if she drinks coffee at such a young age. When, when her fourth birthday came, Agatha treated her to coffee ice cream, and her father and her father God, okay, and her father admonished her mother. I don't know why I'm having trouble with these words. That the coffee would stunt her growth. What does stunt mean, Krista asked. Horse said. Stop growing tall. Mindful of her height, sometimes Krista would lick the cup marveling and savoring every mouthful, secretly saving a prayer to baby Jesus, who sat with the Holy Mother on a table in her little entrance. Today they stay indoors, and Krista senses a change in the atmosphere there too. Then she notices her mother. Then she notices her mother surveying the house where Mila lives. Instructed to peel the skin off the... Excuse me. Instructed to steal the, the skin off the, the, the aubergines and shucked the corn while Agatha went to the market. Krista perches herself on the wooden stool. I'm going like, to turn this light off because it's driving me nuts. Okay. Krista perches herself on the wooden stool, reaching over the trestle table, rustic and pockmarked with age. She reaches for the large bowl of aubergines, a knife in her right hand, and gingerly starts peeling. She is very proud to do this as it means her mother trusts her to do chores in the kitchen. She wasn't allowed that until this year. This year there were changes, many of them. Today another change, but other than the loudspeakers installed the year before, there is something else. In her review, I mean, in her reverie, geez, the knife slips, and she pierces her skin on one finger and bleeds. Brave and stoic, Krista drops the knife, and sucks on the wound, sponging its flow. Don't cry, she thinks, even though it hurts. Her mother would never allow her back in the kitchen ever, ever again. Don't cry. Be brave. Suddenly, a blast issues from the speakers from the window behind her. Octong! Octong! Krista forgets about her finger and steps off the stool, turning to the windows, the smooth stone of the easement. Stu the, stu the, excuse me, the, stu the cool stone of the casement deep and welcoming. She clambers onto its thick surface, warm by the sun. Outside, the bread man and a man and woman in a motor car, dressed in Sunday clothes, are staring up at the rooftop. Pause, like soldiers at attention. A few people, even two children, have stopped. She recognizes them from school and is in the act of calling out to them. Herr Hitler, Dick Tuschland, psyched in... <laughs> Hang on. Get this. I told you it's German, so you know I'm gonna try my best here. <laughs> Herr Hitler, Deutschland, steckt am Schädelwald zur Grubel. If I'm botching this, I'm sorry, you guys. In Dr. Tagen Tagen wired if we Achtjugend geben. This is Herr Hitler, Germany. This is here. This is Herr Hitler. Germany is at a crossroads to greatness. There will be more announcements in the days to come. The children turn and wave at Krista. Another message comes. Attention, you are to stop when the announcements are made. 
we go. Chapter two. <laughs> at least, at least there's a translation, guys. Okay, there we go. Krista turns from her peeling as Agatha enters, wrapped in a shawl, her her dusty her dress dusty, hair dish hair disheveled. By her side, the stroller with Mila. The girl is smiling as if she just won the lottery. Close the shutters, Krista. What's the matter, Mama? Please just shut them. Krista steps up to the casement to, to the casement window and pulls the shutters together, turning the latch. In the dim kitchen, she examines her mother's face for the first time. Mama, who is that man in the loudspeaker who is angry? His voice is so loud and scary. Her mother turns to the faucet, grabs a cloth, wets it, and wipes Mila's flushed face. Mila chortles. Hitler, and you will not speak of him. Who is Hitler? Agatha pauses. It's better we not talk about him. Krista watches her mother reach for Mila, taking her in her, her arms. Mila's frame. Get over here, okay. Taking her in her arms, Mila's slight frame, much smaller than Krista, nestles comfortably in Agatha's slim arms. She's staying with us. Krista squeals with delight, a playmate. She dashes across the room to Mila, but Agatha pulls the stroller away. I am putting her on the floor so you can play with her for now. But that's the last time you're downstairs. Why, Mama? Because you will say nothing about her being here. Do you understand? Krista, riveted to her mother's face, looks back in shock. Quickly, she surmises her mother's meaning. She's hiding? Agatha nods. Yes, but it's not a game. And if anyone finds out, including the landlady, we will all be in trouble. From the angry man, the one on the loudspeaker? Agatha nods again. Yes, the man on the loudspeaker. Agatha pulls Mila off the stroller and places her in the adjacent room, away from the front of the house. Krista joins Mila on the floor of the adjacent room, shuts the window, and watches Mila play with a doll Agatha made for Krista. What? Where is Mila's mama? Agatha sits, a weight on her shoulders. Her sobs fill the room. Krista stands and dashes to her mother's side to await her explanation. Chapter 3. Let me move this over so I can read. I'm just moving stuff over so I can... I enlarged it, so I'm just trying to make sure it fits. Another week passes. One day, they hear the sound of marching. It's over the loudspeaker. Again sitting on the floor of the parlor, Mila points up towards the ceiling, unable to locate the source, cringing at the volume of it. Mila, so, so sensitive to nuances like Krista, shakes as if hit by an invisible force. Agatha moves her low stool across the stone floor of the parlor towards Mila in an attempt to comfort her as Krista continues to peer through the window slats of the shutters facing the street. Agatha looks up from her, her knitting. Is anyone coming? Krista continues to observe. No one, Mama. Just regular people. The loudspeaker moves. They jump. Achtung! Achtung! Suddenly a knock on the door. Agatha sw swiftly picks up Mila from the floor and dashes. Let's see. Like I said, I'm going to have to move this over a couple of times to adjust it. And a dash is two steps at a time up the wooden stairs. Krista makes for the door, but it opens too quickly. I'm going to real quick pull this over just a little bit. There we go. So we don't have that problem. Krista makes for the door, but it opens too quickly. On the threshold, hat in hand, is Horst, Krista's father. Krista visibly gives a giggle, a sigh of relief, and hugs his legs. 
Swiftly he enters and shuts the door, bolting it again. Upstairs, Agatha peers through the banister rails, pleasantly surprised. But hoarse face betrays an inward concern at what's happening outside. The loudspeaker continues. Hitler's voice, reprimanding and intimidating, continues to announce his intentions in German. No one is listening. Horst says, we must talk. Agatha gestures for him to come upstairs, and he removes his coat, hanging his hat in the foyer. He leans down and gives a kiss to Chris's forehead, takes her hand to go up the steps towards Agatha. In Krista's small bedroom, they sit side by side, Krista by their feet, playing with Mila, who is, who is sitting on a small blanket, surrounded by Krista's dolls. Horst looks seriously at his wife, the weight of the conversation on him. You know the okay. You know the Beckmans were just escorted out of their house. Agatha gives a look of shock. Horse continues. They gave them a week to deliver her to the police station. They didn't. They know someone's hiding her. He is looking down at Mila, who continues to play. Crystal looks up at her father's face searching. Why, Papa? Why are they hiding Mila? Agatha sighs. How did the police know about Mila? We hardly see them in the village. Mila is hardly out of the house except Sunday Mass. Where did the Beckmans go? Horace looks down at his shoes as if memorizing the little creases. People talk. Police and soldiers in town? They ask people. There are people eager to, eager to talk in exchange for. Agatha looks up. For what? Where did they take them? They took them to the train station. To go where? I don't know. That's what Herr Beckman asked. I overheard it from the landlady. He asked, and the soldier said, Pack up your things. You're all going to the train station to be re relocated, unless you tell us where your daughter is. And? She's here with us. Agatha stands. But if I let her go? Horse nods solemnly. Yes. Agatha motions for Krista to take Mila with her to the parents' bedroom. Krista obediently takes the girl and carries her, shut, sh uh, shutting the door behind her. Agatha wrings her hands. They will put her away, correct? Lock her up? Horse looks back in fright. No, Agatha. Worse. They will kill her because she's disabled. Oh, my God. My God. So they've been removed from our village and locked up instead until they surrender their own daughter. Yes. Agatha rapidly paces the floor. I, wonder what, I, I wondered what this was about. I wondered why they didn't want me to say anything. Just take her and hide her, Emma said. Just take her and I will come for her when it's over. Krista re-enters re the room. Her eyes go from one parent to another, searching, her body stiffening with every passing minute. Papa, can Mila stay in my room? When will her mama return from the train station? Horse stands, preparing to leave. I'm going to look into it. I'm going to the train station. Agatha looks back in fear. Now? Outside, the loudspeaker has fallen silent. They missed the latest news. Agatha pleads, Please be careful. I didn't like Emma's tone. You know, she's always very calm. I've never seen Emma Beckman this way. I will bring them back here. Surely there must be some confusion. They are Germans like us. Krista dashes to her mother's arms and hugs her. The front door slams. Mother and daughter look back at each other. Chapter 4 Excuse me. Horst, re Horst resolutely strides through the market area. 
tipping his hat as passerby nodding greeting. He goes past the vendors, busy at this time of day. He crosses the only square in the village. He pauses to glance casually at his favorite shops. The, the tobaccoist, the chocolates lining the, the windows of the local of the, of the oh man, the chocolates lining the windows of, of the local sweet shop and the pastry shop. Horst makes a middle note to stop by the pastry shop on his way home from tailoring later that day. But the pressing matter of the Beckman situation occupies him and pushes him on. Resolute on a solution, surely his respected status in the village will carry weight, and soon Mila will be reunited with her family, or so he hopes. He pauses at a corner of the street and sees the train station ahead. He sees a group huddled by the platform and searches for the Beckmans. Emma and her husband, Gert, with their son, Hans, are standing together, holding each other in trepidation. A man in uniform, wearing a white armband with a swastika, smokes casually near them, a rifle at his side, his shoes all polished and glinting. Horse crosses the street, approaching the train platform. Emma makes eye contact as Horst approaches people staring at him, approaches people staring at him, as his dress is impeccable and his suit was tailored by no one else but himself. Horst notices with perplexity that Emma is shaking her head vigorously signaling not to interact. He pauses and realizes that his interlude may in fact cost Mila her hive if he is not careful. The soldier notices him and advances, blocking his way. Zigheel! Zigheil! The man clicks his polished boots together, raising his arm stoically palm forward. Horst appears unimpressed. What is your business, sir? The soldier's eyes glint, appraising Horse-tailored suit with envy. I'd like a word with you, if you please. Certainly. Step this way, but not too far, as these people are under my care. A man gestures towards the group waiting nearby, including the Beckmans. The Beckmans here are my neighbors in this village. Is there a reason why they were asked to leave their home? The soldier clears his throat. He has a look of consternation. Herr, ah? Herr Schneider. Of course, you're the tailor. Herr Schneider. He tips his hat with an eagle on it. He looks askance with distaste at the Beckmans, as both Emma and her son, Hans, watch. The meaning is not lost on Horst. Gert's face is almost beat red, the veins on his neck standing out. The soldier explains casually, they have a daughter, you see. She is not like us and must be educated. Horst raises an eyebrow. Educated? A daughter? Educated. Sent away. They won't let on where she is so that we can do our duty by her. Is that a valid reason to remove her from their home? The soldier looks very... The soldier looks away. Discomfited. I'm to follow instructions, sir. By order of the Fira. They can return to their home once the child is located. At this point, Gert attempts to approach Horst. A look of terror on his face, now betraying his red complexion. Horst lights a cigar, raising his hand for Gert to stop. You are sadly mistaken. I know them well. They have only one child. He's standing right there. He points to Hans, who smiles and approaches, clicking his heels in salute. Yes, sir. I am soon to be a volunteer member of the youth corps. Confused, the soldier observes Hans, who in turn grins for the benefit of the charade. 
He is only 10 years old, and the mandatory age for Hitler Youth Corps is 12. The soldier looks on, impressed. I am the only child of the Beckmans. Hans, Beck Hans Beckman at your service, sir. The soldier, questioningly, glances at another uniformed man nearby who shrugs. At the service of the Reich, I am. Hans clicks his heel again and salutes, his, and salutes with his right hand. To the Führer. The soldier pauses in thought, affected by the child's reply. The soldier dashes to an army jeep nearby and places a call. A distinct chatter and rapid German ensues. He looks aghast by the end of the call. He puts the phone down and approaches the Beckmans, including Horst, including, including Horst the conversation. The soldier appears very apologetic. I have advised my superior, Brig de Fierhestoltz. He indicated that there was a woman in the village who was a Jew who has marked your family for some reason. You know, you know of this Jew? The Beckmans looked on, now in a state of confusion and concern. To give the woman away meant death to her. But they know no one who would have talked yet. That it. who would have talked yet that saves them from lying and is salvation to their family. Horse looks away, musing. Who could be this woman? They have no enemies, Horst offers. The soldier approaches the family, patting Horst on the head like a nice dog. Please, on behalf of the Fuhrer, accept our apology. We have taken the message of a Jew against good Germans. You have our word this will not happen again. She will be severely reprimanded. With that, the soldier salutes again. Hans salutes, and the Beckmans quickly step away from the platform and join Horst. Horst, relieved, but in a state of ambivalence, walks off quickly with the family and away from earshot. Across the street, in the safety of the square, they sit by the fountain, their voices muffled by the fountain and the passing carts laden with hang on. Laden with, 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 with laden with cut. I'm having, you know <laughs> I don't know what it is with words lately for me. Um their voices muffled by the fountain and passing carts laden with common testables and sundries and sundries. Emma asks, What are we to do now? Gert replies, we go back to the house and decide. Horace says, I suggest we keep Mila at my house for a few weeks and see. Take it a week at a time, Emma says, but you will be in so much trouble. We can't put you in, in such, Horse says, nonsense. It's only until things calm down a few weeks. Who is the Jewish woman they are talking about? The family looks at each other, searching their faces for a clue. They look back at Horst, clueless. Horse looks at Hans. We're proud of you. Gert, the color of his face returned to normal, reaches for his son, hugging his shoulder. A brave boy. Emma approaches Horst, thinking, thanking him and reaching for a hug. Horst <clears throat> reciprocates. Glad to help their friends. Inwardly, he cringes at who might have given Mila away and mentally goes through the list of Jewish friends. Move it on up. Chapter 5. Screams of women. Frantic voices. A forest comes into view. A set of bare feminine feet, wounded by the understory, attempt to walk. It is hot, humid, riven, 
with the sound of cicadas. Men in uniform, soldiers with boots protecting their feet, trudged through thick undergrowth. Ahead of them, scores of women and men, young and old, are walking ahead with bare feet, some with slippers, like they were caught at leisure. Some are wearing dress shoes, as if headed for Sunday Mass or work. A group of men and women are dragging a heavy wooden cart meant for horses to pull. It is laden with wooden barrels. The understory rips their feet as they wrestle for purchase, the bushes blocking the wooden wheels. Among the walkers, one in particular has a cloth star hastily sewn and pinned to her breast. She has brown hair to her shoulders, matted and dirty. She appears to be in her forties. She is the owner of the wounded feet. She falls, her eyes shut, pained. She cries, Irma, the Beckman's landlady. A soldier kicks her arm, urging her on with a rifle butt. Go on, maybe you'll learn next time not to snitch on a good German family, bitch. He laughs as she gives him a stare, cold as the water ahead of them. But there won't be a next time, hey? Stop staring or your eyes will come out, or come off. She turns away sobs as she gets on her feet, painfully trudging to join the others. She stops, ruminates and escape, so the so uh, uh, ruminates and escape as the women trudge the waterline of the lake ahead. Go. The men and women amble into the water, grabbing pails and filling them. The exercise is pointless. They are collecting water for the garden to feed the army assembling in a week's time. They have been told. The army that will be garrisoned near their town. Why not just buy foodstuffs at the market? An older man approaches one of the guards. He also has a lapel with a star on it. Excuse me, sir, but the town has a sizable market with vegetables and meat. Why make a huge garden? It cannot be harvested in a week's time. Germination takes two months for some vegetables. The guard stares back in consternation. It's not for you to ask. You're not here to question the Fuhrer get to work. Another woman approaches. We need boots and proper attire. You can't just simply pull us from our regular jobs. We're not old farmers, and a rifle lands on her shoulder. She gives a look of shock and pain as another woman screams. Irma watches in terror. Her face wrinkles in fear, and she sobs. She grabs another bucket full of water and pours it into a large container on a cart. Even though it's midsummer, Irma shivers. The woman whose shoulder has been broken can no longer pick up her pail. As she struggles, a barefooted man tries to help her. She turns to the man, eyes ever so grateful. A shot rang out. A thud. She lies on the ground, a pool of blood forming around her neck. Chapter 6 Krista stands in front of the blue. Bevelmere, slim, tall, and beautiful, in a blue gossamer dress. Her blonde hair glimmers against the morning sun from the open window. Her shoulders slim, her demeanor graceful and feminine. She reaches for a perfume bottle nearby and, and spritzers some on her pulse. Next to Krista, Mila, short and plump in comparison, smiles a broad smile with her freckled face and small eyes. Krista spritzes some of the perfume on her as well. Mila is wearing eye makeup to make her eyes look bigger, but it's mostly covering it's mostly covered by bangs to hide it. 
She is wearing a pastel pink dress with yellow flowers, and she studies her reflection with Kristen next to her. Agatha does not like the dress, and makes Mila stand out too much for a girl who has grown accustomed to being in hiding. However, Kristen insisted, as Mila can't go on living a life behind the walls of a home she has grown accustomed to, going back and forth at night to see her own parents in her cover of darkness. Kristen and Mila approach the bedroom door, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, approach the bedroom window and peer out. It is Krista's 12th birthday. In the side yard, they have two trestle tables laid out with food, cakes, and all manner of balloons for the occasion. Neighbors they recognize are milling about, fixing and tweaking flowers and vases, a dish here and there. Mila wants to stay inside despite the festive atmosphere, and Krista, now so close to the girl, like a sister, not like a sister she never had, has to reluctantly has has to reluctantly comply for the sake of her safety. However, there are no soldiers in sight, and for some reason, things appear to have gotten better from season to season. Outside, Agatha is busy entertaining, moving some of the dishes from the arriving from the arriving neighbors to the appropriate table. Next to her, Emma Beckman is fixing a flower arrangement, a spray of gladiolas, and some lavender, which match the faded cloth tablecloth. Again, okay, Agatha spots Emma Berman's younger sister. Emma Berman's younger sister, Sylvia, in a dull gray dress, wearing a cloth star pinned to her breast. She feels sorry for the young woman, barely 20, who witnessed her sister being taken after she dutifully reported Mila to the census required by the Nazis. Agatha feels guilt and remorse in her pallid frame for what she believes was a betrayal. The woman developed the <clears throat> the woman developed a tick right after the episode, and then a cloth star was shortly required of all the people of Jewish heritage in the village. The young woman baked a kugel, a sweet made from raisins, cinnamon, and boiled noodles. Agatha is so grateful the rent has the rent has not been raised as a way of keeping peace with her tendency. Even when Horst approached the young woman, begging her to raise it, Sylvia fearfully refused. Although she would also be betrayed by her sister, Agatha was saddened by the event, and Horst felt divided by his decision, very divided. Inside the house, Krista descends the stairs with Mila right behind her. Mila spots the large camera, a gift to Horst from a grateful client at the shop. She rushes to it, all coiffed in her new dress and hands it to Krista, who props it on the table. It is so new, she has to fiddle with the shutter. Horse spots them through the open window, and rushes in, eager to begin the festivities. Please, try the new camera, Papa. Krista stands with one hand holding Mila's, as, as Horse stands behind the large camera names. Say kisses. The girls giggle, and the shutter clicks. Mila turns to Krista giggling. Will Hoseph be at the party? She covers her mouth impishly. Kristen goes back. Who is Hosef? Mila laughs. The bread man's son. You like him? Mila laughs. She nods. Krista covers her mouth giggling. I know your secret. Krista looks up and nudges Agatha as Krista exits like a grand young debutante with Mila right behind her. Agatha hear, hears Emma's breath catch in her throat as she quickly scans the other children nearby who are eager and waiting to start the festivities. A group of women clap 
as few as a few men drink beer, raising their frosted glasses in Krista's direction. No soldiers are in sight. Chapter 7 The scents of fine tobacco and leather permeate the shop. Horse stands with one foot on the raised dais, the man in front of him standing ramrod straight. The man appears impressive in his SS uniform, bearing the leaves on his lapel as a brig de fura. Horse measures one leg and then moves to the other side, noting with a pencil and pad the measurements. Around him, the leather sofas and paneling made for a well-appointed tailor shop. The sconce is bright and clean. It makes him proud to be part of this shop, which attests his success and reputation as an accomplished tailor. The customer, uh, the customer clears his throat. Do you always have to? Do you always have it this busy? Horse looks up and pauses from his from his measurements. We do. All three of us have many customers, whom we feel fortunate to have. For the commandant, Bridgefear Bearer continues to stand stoic. Though a smile appears to play slowly over his face. He surveys the tailored clothing hanging from mannequins nearby, tastefully displayed. One other man is being measured by another tailor, and a third one enters the shop to be greeted by a young man dressed in a well-tailored waistcoat. Both customers are also well-dressed in fashionable civilian clothing. Horst wonders how the man he's measuring could afford the suit in, time of, in a time of war, but then notes the Nazi insignia on the man's outer coat nestled and, and primely folded on a nearby armchair. He shivers. Horst wonders what would happen should the man find some flaw in his tailoring. Crossing such a man would not be good for Horst, he decides. He is resolute that this is one client he needs to be that he needs to please among others, probably more so for the sake of his family. Horst steps away and gestures for the man to step down. He eyes the tea service on a nearby table. May I interest you in some tea and biscuits before you leave, sir? The man clears his throat, putting on his jacket. Horse sees the SS pen on the man's lapel and leaves on both uh, lapel, the leaves on both collars. How did he even miss that? No, I must get going. Whatever pleases you, sir. Thank you for your patience. All good tailoring comes with patience, I'm sure. It does, sir. You appear to have an eye for detail. Thank you. And that meticulousness pay off. I'm glad it did, sir. Horse dimly wonders where the conversation is going now that the man claimed to be in a hurry. But he has to go with the flow. The man stepped down, and the other two tailors paused momentarily in their work to acknowledge his presence with a nod. Horse thanks him again. The man checks his watch, but strolls, on, but strolls, but strolls as if on inspection around the shop. He takes in the other clothes pressed and hung on hooks, admiring, touching, and grinning as he does. Horse tries to explain the workmanship, but the man raises his hand to silence him. A perceptible crack issues from Horse's knuckles. He is perspiring and draws on a handkerchief. The man folds his arms in front of himself. Impeccable. These are your handiwork as well? Yes, this part of the shop, sir. The man eyes Horse. How long? Your suit, sir? In two weeks, I can arrange to have it delivered. Please don't trouble yourself. I'll be happy to pick it up. With that, the man strides away, stands by the door, and turns 180 degrees on his heel, snapping them together. Sieg Heil, 
horse unperturbed and prepared to, and prepared salutes back with one arm forward. The man walks out into the sunlight. Horse looks down at his hand with curiosity. The pencil has snapped in two. Chapter 8 The forest bends to an unseen breeze, the silence broken only by a few fluttering birds. The sun is close to its zenith and has begun to settle into a glaring heat. Despite the sunlight, a palpable loneliness descends on the forest. Towards the bottom of a hill, a group of bedraggled townspeople are dragging large logs on a pallet. A large burning heap of logs can be seen in the distance. The group appears to be headed towards it, where other identical heaps also are piled and burning, giving off smoke like the others. Coughing from, from several laboring people. Coughing comes from several laboring people. A large burning pile, interspersed between the logs, a limb. It's mottled and pale and obviously human. Nearby, between logs, another limb. This one part of a leg. Attached is a pale foot. Almost wooden in color. Specked with mud and mottled as well. More nearby. Burning and catching fire as the logs are consumed. A few women are crying. Dragging the logs at the same time. There are several piles in the clearing. A man, old and frail in his seventies, falls. A soldier approaches, and the man raises his hands in a defensive posture. A shot rings out, and the man falls flat. Another woman cries, sobbing in agony. Several yards away, obscured by a corpse of trees and understory, Chris appears between the leaves, watching in horror. She has just arrived with her with her little charges of children and walked away to take a discreet turn to relieve herself. She is wearing a dapper, impressed outfit of khaki and dark brown. A short-sleeved white shirt with a dark brown tie, a schwa sticker pinned, pinning the tie to her chest, a skirt with long stockings to match. She is dressed as a, as a, as a Nazi youth and, so are, youth, and so are the children. Behind Krista, the children mill about, romping and playing as children do, drawing sketches on the ground with sticks they found. The oppressive heat of midday required a break, but the horrendous scene makes her gag. Krista turns her attention back to the children, some as young as four, some only a few years younger than her. One child, a boy of about ten, approaches. Quickly, Krista blocks his view, wondering if he can hear the yelling from the soldiers, who are, in stern voices, ordering the miserable group of civilians. Obviously, the boy can. Krista tries to steer him away. No, please, we're both too young to see. The boy gently pushes her hand away, his eyes excluding a look of puzzlement. Please, don't make a sound, Krista says. The boy puts a finger to his lips, leans between the tree limbs, and watches in fascination. Krista is appalled at the boy's look, as his demeanor gives away a dreadful, growing delight. Enwrapped at the scene of a group, being approached by a soldier, Krista looks on in distaste and anxiety. The soldier spits on a woman who is struggling to pull a can to pull a cart with the help of three other women. The soldier is yelling obscenities in German. The boy pantomimes the struggle of the, of the women and laughs. Krista pulls him away, a finger on her lips, a look of disapproval on her face. The boy leaps to the ground as the soldier turns, hearing him. The soldier raises his rifle, surveying the wood. Krista whispers, 
don't. She leans behind the tree, trying to disappear. The boy steers back in defiance. I don't care. He can come here, and we can say just we can say we just want to learn tactics. Krista reels back in consternation. The boy's bravado bothers Krista. What she is doing is teaching these kids that it is all right to hurt others because they are different. It is it is so against what her parents believe in. With growing horror, Krista realizes that this boy could grow to become a brown shirt, a civilian who snitches on others on behalf of the Reich. They are called brown shirts because they wear a brown drab uniform from head to toe, identifying them as the eyes and ears of the Nazis. They assist the Reich like demons assist Satan. What if this boy finds out that Agatha is hiding a disabled girl? As his teacher, would this boy betray her at the cost of her mother and Mila? The soldier lowers his rifle and turns away, losing interest. He turns back to watching his group pulling the heavy laden cart full of logs. A woman appears like she is about to have a heart attack. Her face, sweaty, red and bulging with effort, makes Krista's own heart burst with anger and injustice. That woman could easily be her own mother. She watches the boy next to her stand, wipe soil off his short pants, and rejoin the group in the meadow. It was as if he were just watching a soccer match. Krista shivers, even though it is hot, realizing this boy would be as ruthless as the soldiers. Reluctantly, Krista rejoins her young charges, about twelve in all, hazarding the glance back at the trees that shield her and her group from the demented violence several yards away. The boy approaches the group and eagerly tells him what he saw. A few of the students gasp in horror. They look at Krista for an explanation. Krista, unable to provide a quick explanation, gestures impatiently for them to keep going. A little girl of four approaches and reaches for her hand as they walk. And another girl hangs on to Krista's starched skirt, seeking solace. Everyone go quickly now, as lunch is waiting for us. The last one will not get lunch. The two little girls dash away following the group. The rest romp ahead without a care in the world as she follows behind. Grabbing her books from the, from the grass, the Nazi swastika playing on the binding of the book in her hands. Krista walks, watching her charges, touching, touching the head of the four-year-old with affection as she passes. She frowns, wondering what will happen to them. Chapter 9 Krista awakens in the dark wood, the face of a bloody woman in tatters <clears throat> hovering a few inches from her face. The woman's hair is matted with soil, snails clinging to her, to her filthy locks. The snails fall on Krista, clinging to her face, her clothes, her hair. She vainly tries to brush them off with her hands, but she's unable to move. One large snail crawls inches away from her eyes. She can't find a voice. She can't find her voice. Finally, she screams. Sunlight. The door to her bedroom swings open. Krista awakens in bed as Agatha approaches in alarm. You are having a nightmare. Agatha sits by her side as Krista sits up and reaches for her mother. Mila stands at the doorway in her pajamas, looking on with a look of concern. It's early, but your father has left for the shop. Sorry to scare you, Mama. A bad dream. Come and have breakfast. You'll feel better. Mila waves, Chris, waves Krista a wave of, come and join us. Agatha 
ushers me to the back of the kitchen. Come let her get washed. Come, let her get washed and dressed. We're going to see her. We're going to see your mama tonight. Mila smiles a wide smile, clapping her hands in silence. Krista watches them leave as she descends from her bed, a look of worry and love on her face. In the kitchen, Agatha pours Mila a glass of lemonade from a frosted green pitcher filled with lemon slices. She sees Mila's reflection through the pitcher as the teen consumes a small pancake one small pancake after another. Mila gained some weight in early adolescence, and it had become more difficult for Agatha to explain what the bolts of flowered cloth were, were for that she gave to Horst in his tailor shop. Why so big a cut, one woman said at the fabric store. Was Agatha pregnant? Agatha hated the questions and had to explain that it was a new style her husband was trying. As as he also made clothing for women. He's a trendsetter, Agatha confided. Then the woman indicated she wanted to see it on wanted to see it on when it was finished. Later that day, Agatha told Emma she would need her to purchase her own cloth, as the fabrics were arousing suspicion with the seller. Emma decided with Agatha that she would need to be more prudent in purchasing solid colors instead. Instead of flowers to explain them to explain away that they were for her husband and son instead of a daughter who wasn't supposed to exist, if only their village weren't so nosy. A few weeks later, Agatha went with Horace to Frankfurt, taking Emma along to shop in the large fabric stores, where no one knew them, as it was a city where those questions were no longer asked. Krista walks down the shops, one at a time, her dress the worst for wear. It is a Saturday morning. She recalls and it is her father's turn to mind the shop on a weekend. Today, like other Saturdays when her father is working, is a day full of washing and hanging clothes, pulling weeds from their small vegetable garden, and playing in the twilight before dinner. There's no point in wearing her good clothing, as there is no school. Then she remembers with a feeling ache and dread that now during the week she is a used court teacher and has to wear the dull khaki uniform issued by the heavy lady. What was that woman's name again? The buxom woman spoke to her parents a month ago, dropping off books for Krista to use and indoctrinating the charges assigned to her. In one of the books, she is supposed to study a list of things to remember to remember and make Krista in okay. In one in one of the books, she is supposed to study a list of things to remember made Krista inwardly cringe. Do teach the Aryan race is under threat. Do teach blonde hair and blue eyes are a sign of the pure Aryan race. Do teach. Report all non-Aryans. Do teach. It is our duty as citizens to report all Jews, children, and racial deformities and blood impurities. Krista was taken aback, reading and rereading what the book said. What is racial deformity? What's blood impurity? She turned the pages, and there are picture after picture of children who were offspring of women who were from other countries. Asian, black, and some with different hair texture and eyes, not as wide or blue as hers. Then one page showed children they called retarded or mongoloid. Krista was fascinated, but then repulsed. Why rid the world of them? Aren't we as citizens supposed to help them because they are at a disadvantage? It kept going. Do teach. Good German citizens must be loyal and salute whenever possible. 
teach proper salute, and so on and so on and so on. Kristen yawned at the monotonous list of do's and don'ts. Don't argue, don't ask, don't be dirty. Racially impure people are dirty. Krista sat back, rethinking of her history, or Krista sat back, thinking of her history and geography books, where people ate, dressed, and practiced customs and traditions that were different from her village. She thought they were interesting and wanted to visit those places when she grew up. These people were racially different. In the kitchen, Krista sits across from Mila and Agatha, who nudges a bowl of oatmeal towards her, dotted with almond slivers and golden raisins. Mila instantly frowns, taking in Krista's somber mood. Krista, why are you sad? Not sad, just thinking about my nightmare. Mila pouts. I didn't do anything wrong, did I? Agatha notices and turns to Mila. Mila, your bath is waiting for you. Why don't you go ahead while Krista eats and let me clean up breakfast? Mila gives Krista a quick kiss on the cheek before she steps off the stool and climbs the stairs. Agatha watches Mila climb up the steps and disappear into the upstairs bathroom. She glances back at Krista, who looks forlorn and very concerned. She stands and opens the kitchen window to the breeze of the early morning. It has a view of the quiet street. Agatha returns to her stool, joining Krista at the table. What happened yesterday? You haven't been the same since you came home from teaching. Krista plays with her oatmeal, trying not to add the growing burdens in the household. She takes a spoonful of hot porridge, but doesn't reply. I'm listening, Krista. I'm here for you. Krista takes another spoonful of the oatmeal and finally replies, Mama, do you know what the books are about that the lady gave me to teach the children? Agatha gives back a look of trepidation. No, I wish your father and I had a chance to look through them. What are they about? Krista's eyes well with tears. When I first got them, I had to look through them and read the first one. Then I had to study them. So I did. And I will show you. Some are about Mila's types of person. Agatha wipes at the tablecloth, deep in thought. Mama? Agatha looks at the view outside the kitchen window from where they sit. The birds are chirping. It is a lovely day. Mila is, call, is being called retarded. Mongoloid? Agatha solemnly nods. Krista observes. Is she? Now you know how dangerous it is for us. How could they? Agatha reaches for her daughter's hand, the spoon now resting on the napkin, the oatmeal partially eaten. The hand she holds is cold, clammy. Mama, yesterday there was a meadow where I took the children to rest. Yes, it was around lunchtime. I wasn't expecting to see anyone, but there were soldiers and prisoners in that part of the woods. I don't know if they were prisoners, but the soldiers were forcing a group of people to work. They were so cruel to them. Krista goes on to tell Agatha what she saw and the boy's reaction, which troubled her. What you saw was forced labor. Most are probably Jews from around here and from as far as Poland. Krista starts crying. Do I have to keep teaching what it says, Mama? Do I? Agatha stands, comes around the table, and takes her daughter in her arms. I'm so sorry you had to see that. So sorry. Krista looks up at her mother, a look of horror in her eyes. What is it to become a what is to become of you if they catch you with Mila? Krista, the window is open. For several years now, it was the elephant in the room which was left unspoken.
Krista brought it to the light of day. Agatha shakes her head. I don't know. I pray we don't have to get to that, my dearest. You have to think it through, Mama. You have to see what they're doing to them. I know, I know. Agatha pulls up a stool, draws her daughter to her, and they rock together crying. Mama, I love Mila. But if we are caught with her, on the top of the stairs, Mila sits watching and listening. She takes it all in and appears to understand. Chapter 10 Straying to lean out of the deep recess of the windowsill, Mila finally climbs on it and sits. She follows the cobbled path to the street, uh, of the street below with her eyes. Finally, her eyes rest where the slim figure of Agatha is walking, receding in the distance of the street, deserted and misty early in the morning. She notes the street signs. Agatha told them earlier that day she is going to the market to sell her embroidery and then coming back by noon for lunch. Mila recalls the market. There is a train station nearby. On paper from her pocket, she draws a sketch of the streets with her little fingers using a pencil. Then she steps down into the bedroom, a simple room decorated with yellow flowers on the walls. Yellow is her favorite color. On a small bed with an iron headboard, Mila has an open suitcase filled with her clothes, some of which need mending, some new. She presses a small notebook into a corner, then pauses. Changing her mind, she picks up the notebook and opens it. A photo of Josef. The bread man's son falls out. She slips it back in and pockets the notebook. She looks up towards the door, where her straw hat hangs on a hook and pauses. Tears well in her eyes. Mila quickly wipes away the tears with her sleeves and looks up at the clock on the wall. It's close to 7 a.m. Down below, she hears Krista's footsteps trudge up the wooden stairs. Quickly, she shuts the suitcase and pushes it underneath the narrow bed. She smooths the newly made bed, practiced from years of pretending it, it is a spare bedroom. As it is supposed to be. Empty, unintended, and lonely for a guest. A knock on the door. Come in. Krista peers in, a grin on her face. Got time to help me pull weeds from the garden? Mila steps away from the bed, wipes her hands on her threadbare dress, and nods with zeal. Too eager, Krista thinks. Pulling weeds is not one of Mila's favorite chores. Maybe she's eager to get out of the house. The vegetable garden is sizable. In varying stages of growth, cabbages, rutabagas, and turnips, newly harvested, lay in a heap near a row of spinach and tomato. A, a row of trees on one side obscures them from, from the field beyond, a small hill from the back. A small pail with gardening tools stands nearby. Krista grabs it as Mila hunches over a low patch of weedy ground between rows of broccoli. Krista hands Mila a trowel to help dig up the weeds, and she takes a row a few feet from her. Krista's back turns as she hunches down to start the arduous but necessary task. Krista starts humming a tune to pass the time and then breaks into a song. It is a tune her father used to play on the piano when she was young. Mila joins in the refrains. Schon ist die Nacht. Schon ist die Nacht. Krista, sing, Krista sings, turning to glance at Mila, who has a pretty voice, though a bit out of tune. She continues singing. It helps to pass the time and makes the chore more enjoyable. A rabbit emerges from a burrow nearby. 
and Krista pauses from her work to observe it, still humming the tune. Lost in thought, Krista watches the rabbit hop around the turnips, sniffing them with its pink nose. The sun is emerging behind the clouds. Krista pulls out a handkerchief with a pink Okay, with a pink pony embroidered on one corner. That's the flower, not a horse. She dabs her forehead with it. The rabbit hops away. She turns to see if Mila saw it. Mila is gone. Krista stands, wiping the sweat from her forehead. She decides to follow. Mila into the house, eager for a cool to follow Mila into the house, eager for a cool drink. She walks in the kitchen, but Mila isn't there. She pours a cool pitcher of lemonade from the morning from the morning's breakfast and pulls another glass from the cabinet. Silence. Mila. She pours a second glass of lemonade. Mila. She walks into the small parlor. No Mila. Upstairs in Mila's bedroom, Krista pushes the small table where a washbowl sits, away from the wall, where a closet is hidden. Krista gets down on her hands and knees and pushes the door open, revealing a dusty entrance to the attic. Mila, did something scare you? Okay, we're going to stop there. Chapter 11 next week. Um, got a good start on this. I'm sorry I stammered over some words. I was th- I was kind of thinking ahead and uh, got ahead of myself, so that's a lot of the reasoning why. But uh, great book. I mean, uh, you know, I can't say I'm enjoying it because of the topic, but uh, so far it's, it's been it's been a great read. Uh, it's well written. I love you know I love this kind of book. I have a lot of books similar to this. You know, true stories from from uh, World War II Germany, and uh, this stuff absolutely is a, is of interest to me. So um, I'm really into what's going on here. So I want to thank you guys for coming today for listening. Let me uh, switch this down here. I remember we're going to be starting chapter 11. Let me get my stuff. Chapter 11 next weekend. Um, tomorrow uh, we'll be on at 7 p.m. Okay, we're not going to be on at 6:30. It's going to be 7 p.m. show. We're going to be on with uh, Professor Gregory Brennica, and he is going to be talking about volcanoes and supervolcanoes. So I'm really stoked about that. So uh, that's what's going to be on tomorrow on, on the regular California Haunts Radio at 7 p.m. Again, not 6.30 p.m., okay? So remember that. So he's going to be our guest tomorrow. And uh, I thank you guys for coming today. You know, I know it's, not, it's, it's kind of like a nice wind down to the weekend where we can all sit down and, and uh, let me get my light back on. There we go. Where we can all sit down and read books, you know, and just kind of enjoy the evening, have a cup of coffee or a snack or whatever, and just just listen to just listen to a good book. And I thank Anna for uh, providing her book. I'm really excited about that. You know, it's it's just wonderful that she did that, and I really appreciate it because she's like I said, um, she's a great guest when she's on the show, and uh, I just I I love to read anyway. Okay. But anyway, uh, if you like the show, share it. If you like this, you can share it with five people. If you hated this, you can share it with five of your enemies. We're looking to, uh, you know, get the word out on, on the California Hunts Radio Show during the week. Of course, we do different topics. Some are paranormal, some aren't, like tomorrow's uh, thing on volcanoes. You know, you know, we're trying to kind of vary what we do. I'm a journalist. That's what I do. And, um, you know. I just love doing this stuff. And uh, again, you know, uh, subscribe to our YouTube page. If you're watching from YouTube, uh, the little ghost guy there with the uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass, uh, click on that and uh, you'll be notified when we have new videos coming out. Uh, You know, we uh, have over 200 videos over there and I really appreciate it. And again, Anna Marie Manalo, 
and Anna Maria Manalo, thank you so much for the for the use of your book. I just uh, I'm just beyond over the moon on it to be able to read it. Okay, uh, we are a nonprofit organization, so everything you see here comes out of my pocket. Uh, you know, if a light goes out, computer dies, my headphones are starting to die, so I'm going to have to get a new pair of headphones at some point here. Um, that all comes out of my pocket. And if you could find it in your heart to help us keep this show on the air, because we want to keep bringing good guests to you guys. We want to be able to do the, sun, you know, the Sunday read. Sometimes we even read on Saturdays. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, we, we want to keep doing this for you guys. So, um, you know, please, please, please donate. You know, you can do it at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can go to Venmo. Just type in California Haunts and just do it that way. We're not asking for a lot. Just I just want to pay my bills, keep things going here, and be able to get equipment when, you know, as I need it. All right. I want to let you guys know about a special event. We're going to be doing a ghost tour on March 26th where we take you to a haunted location. It's either going to be a haunted hotel or we're going to take you to a very active, or we're going to take you to an active cemetery. The difference between this and a regular tour, where a psychic takes you through, is that there is that although we do have mediums out there with us on site, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be a real investigation. We have really some really cool equipment. Some of this equipment you've seen on TV. Okay, you get to you you get to try the equipment hands on or and see it in action. This is your chance to see it in action or. Or try to fiddle around with it and, you know, and, and get to know the equipment. All right. And then we go over the evidence. And if you got some evidence, you know, from the investigation, we will put your name on the website as getting the evidence. That, you know, that, you know, you can pass it around to everybody, you know, be proud that, that you obtained that particular evidence. So, I mean, this is a real ghost hunt. This is not some kind of tour thingy that you're going to go on. This is, this is you meeting up with us, me signing you to a, team because i'll start well, what i'll do is i'm only going to take 10 people out there besides my, my my three or four team members and then i'm going to assign you to one of my team members who will take you around and teach you how to investigate properly so, so you get a feel for what real investigations like so sign on up for that you can access that the information on that at californiahauntsradio.com and just go across the top to extras and slide on down and it'll show you special events you can go in that way to uh, sign up for that. But that's going to be on March 20, Saturday, March 26th. And I'm going to be there too. So it gives you a chance to meet me and get to know me a little bit. And my producer. My producer will be there too. Okay. But uh, I want to thank you guys for coming today. Taking time out on your Sunday. And I will see you tomorrow at 7 p.m. Pacific. Have a good evening.